Hello and welcome to Agility at Work. I'm co-host Mike Wheeler. My usual partner in this enterprise, Kim Leary, can't be with us today. So I'm flying semi-solo, happy to reciprocate for the time she's covered for me. We're out of the studio now, working remotely as so many people are, so apologies in advance for any odd ambient noises. There's a little breeze on the Massachusetts coast right now, and I just heard the dog next door bark. I don't know if Zoom caught any of that, but if it did, I hope it gives this a homey feel. One other bit of housekeeping. A reminder that Agility at Work is sponsored by Negotiation 360. You can find a bunch of resources there, links to online courses, information about my Negotiation 360 self-assessment best practice app, and various articles that Kim and I have written. Much of the stuff is free. Here's a shortcut for finding our site. Just type in the letter N, as in negotiation, the digits 360.expert. Make sure you use that domain name. It's n360.expert. Okay, now a quick word on our guest today, Peter Sawyer. He and I were at Amherst College back in the day, and I run into him once in a while, but I didn't realize until recently that he's been a talent agent for most of his career, representing Broadway and Hollywood stars, pro athletes too. Basically, he negotiates for a living. I'm looking forward to learning more about how he gets producers and sponsors, sometimes they're complete strangers, to answer his cold calls. So I'll ask him to join us now. Prior to this, I had been working with a company doing investor relations, and our largest client was Sony. I had a major project that I got from uh, Akio Morita, the chairman, to evaluate the difference between VHS and uh, beta. He was convinced of the superiority of beta. I spent maybe eight months developing this project that basically said, in terms of home video, beta is... While it's superior mechanically, it can never get the recording lengths. That is what what this business is going to be about. I can do the math a little bit, but I remember when the beta thing was an issue. Were we talking early 80s? 78, 79 is what I'm guessing. Anyway, uh, the report I wrote said that beta would be fine for the broadcast business, but would never work in home video. And he was so outraged at my conclusion, he fired us. And my partner and I didn't have that many clients. (laughs) So it basically put us out of business. But I was one, you know, looking for a job. I wound up in Florida for a while working in a a vertical uh, textile manufacturer. And then came back to Connecticut, where I live now, and uh, a tennis relationship when I came back that existed before. This is with a neighbor or near neighbor, is that right? Yeah, the na- this neighbor who lived where I was living uh, owned an agency in, in New York uh, that had been around since the 60s. And when you say agency, you mean? It was primarily a, uh, a talent agency. They represented actors and a lot of soap app actors, soap writers, television actors and a lot of theater people and playwrights, they weren't doing any books. So that takes me to this question, Peter. 
you're freshly minted as an agent. Frankly, I'd assume anybody in your shoes might have credibility issues landing a uh, big name client. I know you're charming and you truly are, but but was that a challenge? Of course, but one of the things that I think is very critical, and you know, your your metier is is negotiation, and and it's something I do. But what's really to me the challenge is being in a position to negotiate. Uh, and how, because most negotiations work. You may not, may be more or less favorable to your client or yourself. But getting to a point where someone will negotiate with you is, to me, is, is, is the real trick of what you have to learn to be in my business. One way is having a client that people want. Another way is trying to convince people who don't never heard of your client uh, that they want him and have to have him. I got that, but I want to go back to the question I asked before. This doesn't sound like it had much to do with what you're doing for Sony. I understand there's a broad sense. You've got an objective and you've got to figure out how to reach it. But this seems like a fresh start. It, it is. But so when I started at Fifi Oscar Agency, I began by doing something I felt I had some knowledge about, which was, you know, dealing with companies. Mm-hmm from the investor access business. And I had, so I began uh, working with some project, calling up, cold, basically cold calling companies, knowing what I had behind me uh, with actors and so forth, trying to convince someone that they should make a commercial. So I'd be calling advertising agencies. One of the things that I, that I, I think is really critical uh, is that when you don't know what you're doing, you can be very brash and bold. I was able to call and, and get through and talk to chairmans and you know high-ranking uh, people at different companies. As I became more successful, it became harder and harder to put myself in a position where I could get rejected. <laughs> and I think this is true of a lot of people. So when you're young and you don't know any better. Yeah. You're not encumbered by the fear of failure. What is failure? For example, I tell my negotiation students, whether they listen or not, if you always come to agreement, you're being pretty agreeable. You know, maybe you're saying yes to things you shouldn't, and maybe you're also not be daring enough to take a flyer on something that probably is not going to work. But if it does, you hit a home run. So if you can recognize this in yourself that, you don't have your, your brashness at this point. Why can't you just flip it back on? You can't, or at least I can't. Maybe some other people can. Uh -huh. I, I'm, I'm not by nature a salesperson. And I think that kind of optimism that a successful salesperson has is they're always on in a sense. I see. Uh, I, um, I got to a point where the creation of an idea and the realization of that idea was almost as successful to me or as fulfilling to me as actually doing it. <laughs> you know, I, gee, what a great idea if that could happen. Right? As an agent, as a talent agent, how did you learn about negotiation? Did you even think of it or does it come to you naturally? It doesn't, nothing comes naturally, <laughs> naturally I don't think. In, in many ways, what 
we have in the entertainment business, and it was more so at the time I was doing this breaking in than it's true today, because money has changed astronomically. There was a, a notion of scale, and scale or is like a minimum. And everybody would get scale, whatever that happened to be, uh, for a particular kind of job that the unions defined and negotiated. This is for talent. We're talking about getting scale. Yes. So we're talking about scale, a kind of minimum floor that actors and maybe other people involved in production uh, can get uh, according to the union agreement. Right. And so now you have the language of scale and a half, double scale, triple scale, and so forth. Uh, and, and so with actors, a lot of this is defined by the, by the union contracts. As a floor. As a floor or as a relationship to that floor. Right. But I, so, would, assume, I would assume that you must sometimes have actors where you have to have some degree of vanity and self-confidence to do that work. We have a notion of a quote. A casting director will ask an agent, what is their quote, which can be checked, which is what they got paid for their last job. I see. Uh, now, celebrities, it's a totally different situation. And whether it's a the part in the, the picture or a, uh, you know, a cameo appearance and so forth, there you have a little more room. But generally speaking... The, the working actor, you're going from in, in movies and television, you're working off either some relationship to scale or, or quotes, and you try to find situations where you can improve their quote but, with each successive job. Uh, uh, there must be situations where somebody really wants the part, it's an interesting director, and they're getting quoted something that actually would bring down their their quote. And so do people That's ever- a problem. Yep. And what do you do? My first idea is to try to find some something else to add to the negotiation, whether on the back end or something that I can sweeten this pot with so I can declare that it's a non-quote job. I see. I see. So you, you separate it out as a, a, a special case. Right. Right. How about people, and do you run into them, who think they ought to be, quote, four or, quote, ten or whatever the question and It's just unrealistic. Do you end up negotiating with your client? I try never to negotiate with a client because what I'm there for in many ways is to uh, reduce their expectations and uh, increase their happiness. <laughs> Well, how does that work? Uh, I'd be really happy if you'd pay me twice what you're talking about. I tell them who else got what and how, how this is so much better than anything uh, they should be expecting. Working with Barry Levinson, working with Jonathan Demme, you know, used to be able to say that everybody works for Woody Allen for scale. It's It was never a question of I'm a star, I'm working for, but you work for Woody Allen, you work for scale every actor has ever worked for. Other directors as well, or is that a unique case? Directors today who are, you know, if you're making a big movie, you, you've got Warners behind you or Universal or someone, and, and you know, they're they're putting up the money. So, so if we think about offers and counter offers, 
You've described yep. how in this kind of negotiation, and you others as well, it falls to you as the agent to basically put forth, you know, what the history has been and what, what the quote level is. Is that correct? That's correct with actors, yes. And is there any budging off that? Basically, when you put that quote forward, you'll say, we'll do it for that? Is that the answer? Or, or is that where you add the contingencies in? If we're unhappy, so we have to travel. How many days away? I mean, there, there are a lot of things that you have to look at the overall picture that, that it's just not, you know, the money and, and the job by itself. I mean, what you want to do since my income is based on their income, is make the most profitable deal you can. Is there any situation where there's at least a slight conflict of interest between an agent and the client? So that if you just put it in a sports context, and I know you've represented a lot of athletes, but I think those are on promotional, promotional deals, not negotiating with the teams. Is that correct? I have never. Again, that's another union you have to be part of in order to negotiate a contract. And they are, I mean, an NFL contract, it's a 3% cap. That's the most an agent can get, no matter how much money they get their client. And that's uh, in baseball, it's 6%. Basketball and football, 3%. Understood. Under, but that that is not the world in which you function. You represent athletes, but in a different context. Is that right? I do. I do books with them. I put them on Saturday Night Live. I put them. And we've had several guys gone on soap operas. I was Olympic swimmer Steve Lundquist, the breaststroker. I had him on Days of Our Lives for two years after the Olympics. Huh. Huh. So what I was getting at, though, is how much creativity goes into the structuring uh, of these deals. And you mentioned there are adjustments for if there's going to be a lot of travel and things of of that sort. But it sounds as in some ways you're locked into the past, given what the actor has been paid the last or last three uh, uh, pictures. How do, how do you get the bump up? Try to create conflicting offers. The best way to get a, a price up, same thing with a book, is to have two interested buyers. I see. I see. Now, if I'm if I'm peddling a book, I've just got one book out, but you could be pursuing a number of different roles in different pictures. Right. Absolutely. Does that turn and into an auction of sorts then? It's not it no, it doesn't because the timing is different from an auction. I mean, in an auction you set up rules and 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 all the participants know what the rules are. And and uh if the rules are met, you don't uh you can't change them. If you don't get what you want, you're stuck. Right. Uh, here, if you, have, you know, the client is really going to determine which, the, the jobs are not the same. They're, they're both movies, but different character, different part. I, you know, I've done three Westerns. I don't want to do another Western, you know. You're speaking for the actor there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, you had mentioned in our prior conversation, how do I go about getting actors how do i get them in the first place uh, a lot of times it comes from people you know say i got some you know people call and recommend people mm -hmm. other times other agents that you work with uh will call you and say you know the california agents it's different now but it used to be that very few offices had you have to you have to have an office within 50 miles of a workplace in order to represent a union actor. That's part so, of that's part of the union rules? Yeah, yeah. 
So if you want to re represent an actor in New York, you need an office within 50 miles of New York. Same thing with Los Angeles. And those are really the only two cities that matter in terms of this. Uh, so if you just had a Los Angeles office, you needed someone to represent your client if they wanted to go to New York. So we had a lot of reciprocal arrangements I with see. California agents who didn't have New York offices. Uh, can you have a presence in, as an agent? Can you have a presence in both venues or do you have to choose one or the other? Well, if you're if you're big enough and have enough money, I'll have an office in both. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, the ICM and William Morris and so forth, which is now uh, taken over by the, the Chicago crowd, uh, you know, has offices in all of the world, in London and uh, Paris and so forth. Uh, I no longer work with them other than on rare, rare occasions. So at this day and age, we're still in this uh, pandemic. I assume most of your negotiations, maybe all, are uh, virtual. Is that correct? That is correct. There are also much longer term options. I see. Because the immediate future is so uncertain. Yeah, and everybody's invoked force majeure on, the, on their existing contracts. Does it make any difference to you whether you're looking at somebody on a screen or across the table or at a restaurant? How does that change the way in which you negotiate? I'm not sure that it does. I don't think it changes the goals at all. No, I, mean, no, I see cl that. Clear, clearly, there's, you know, the face-to-face -face thing is fun for a lot of reasons uh, because, you know, you care about there's a human contact. You know, you, I learn about people's families and children, they about mine and, and so forth. And, and you put a face on it. Uh, almost all the time in, in anything other than the theater stitch, theater and uh, film situation with actors, but everything else uh, on the creative side with plays and, and uh, you know, writing jobs, you know, I'm generally negotiating with lawyers and I'm not a lawyer. And that has a lot to do with how one proceeds because, you know, they're being paid regardless of whether they strike a deal with me or right, not. Right, because the clock is running. The clock is running. And, and I'm not being paid unless I get a deal and the check clears. Uh-huh. So there, there's that dynamic. Uh, so I don't want to sit across the table from a lawyer generally with current uh, company accepted, but... Uh, <laughs> So, I mean, that, that, that's a very important part of how I negotiate, knowing that relationship and knowing what his job is. You know, when I negotiate with another agent, we have a sense of a historical sense. Right. That a lawyer doesn't have in many ways. He's looking at a contract. And uh, I think we're, we're looking uh, at what's going to make everybody happy, what's going to make our next deal work. Can you stay with that a little bit? Because uh, that's a fundamental difference, and that lawyer may uh, have have a bunch of clients, and uh, the clients may move around to other lawyers or, or the companies that, that you're dealing with as well. Yours is long-term, relationally oriented, and so forth. I think that'd be a challenge where you're working on very different priorities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I 
I've invested hours and hours and hours on things that have come to to nothing. Why? Probably because I'm not very good. <laughs> or, you know, it was just unrealistic. When you have multiple people in a deal, for example, in a uh, something that's going on right now, a, uh, a musical called Tap Dance Kid, there's a, a librettist, there's a someone, a composer, and there's a book writer. And in a, in a theater, normally there's a 6% royalty and it's split two, two, and two between all three. Right. Now, the, when you get a revival situation, many years have gone by and some people die. <laughs> and the author, on the, the so-called author, and in this case, it's a, a three-person in a play has absolute control. Whereas the author in a movie has none. But on play, if you don't want that director, you don't get that director can't work. If you don't yep. want that actor. So uh, so you, you can go through and I mean, we, we had a, a deal for the tap dance kid with a Japanese company, Yokohama, coming up with a $5 million guarantee for development. Henry Krieger, who is the uh, composer, is the only living member of the threesome. And he had nothing to do with the book, nothing to do with the lyrics, but he's the composer. Right. And he, so we wanted to update it. And they hired a, a writer to update it. Now, when you hire a writer to, to adapt someone else's material, that's a negotiation by itself. How much should they get? Who should pay for it? Typically, the adapter would get could get up to 50% of the writer's share based on a, a, a fair use estimation of how much it's changed. Got it. But Henry just decided he didn't like the idea where, where it was going, and he just killed the project. I mean, he left $5 million on the day. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I mean, right now it looks like we're going to do it again for an, an a limited edition run with encores in, in New York, but it, it's not going to be the same. And Henry is okay with this adapter that we're talking about, but he killed a great deal. And, the, but the author has that kind of power in the theater, but, but not, in, not in film, on. not in film. So as we think about bargaining power, the fact that you can pull the plug on it, though, obviously that cost him money. It means, did. means you got to pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how has your approach to negotiation changed, if at all? And I'm mindful of the clock here, but but you've been at this for years, decades uh, on this. Um, how has it changed, either because of your your nature or what you've learned, or how the world has changed? Over time, I've gotten a better sense of the market, and that's almost an intuitive feeling, and a sense of how badly someone else needs the deal. I think I'm a little smarter than I used to be. I also am less greedy, I think, than I used to be. I understand in a way I didn't when I was younger that both sides have to be happy. So sometimes I would take less for my client. You explained a story with, with Jim and taking less on a, on a book advance. And just so everybody understands, he's talking about my, my fabulous uh, agent, Jim Levine, for the 
Art of Negotiation, How to Improvise Agreement, I'm dropping a plug in here, How to Improvise Agreement in a Chaotic World, we actually walked back the uh, advance in order to keep the uh, foreign language rights, and it turned out that what we gave up there was offset by a good number by what we got on the foreign rights. So we negotiated them down, which is not what you usually do, but that was incentive for us to uh, to do it. So you've seen other situations like that, right? Oh, absolutely. And and I one thing I changed, I used to always uh, maintain those foreign rights, which typically would pay 75 to 80% if the publisher owns it would, would pay you, but they would be part of the general royalty pool so unless your book earned out, you'd really never see any of those dollars. And I would have a bunch of agents in 18, 20 different countries who I would send stuff to and they would sell the foreign rights for me. But now with taxes and, and currency exchange and so forth, you really need to look at, at what the number is. If you think you got a book that's going to earn back its in advance, you can generally say, take the world rights. Because the aggravation of selling it and go going through all of that, reducing your commission from 15 to 10, is it worth the 20% the gap? So it's a, it's a trade-off analysis. It so really is. With that example to, to wrap, I'm sure that there are some people who are either who are listening, who are either writers or aspiring writers and so forth, so you can consider that a bonus tip. And it's also... A suggestion, I think, to everybody who negotiates about how you are trying to imagine what the bird in the hand is and where you're willing to take a chance for for future payments. So it's where, where the bird will go. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to lose what you said just a few minutes ago, though. That uh, you've become this is your word less greedy. Maybe that's not exactly the right word, but uh, whether it's ambitious or or whatever, over time you understand that the other side has to be able to sell the deal that it's made to uh, other parties as well. So it strikes me that you're obviously in this lattice of all of these intersecting negotiations. It sounds demanding and very, very exciting. I'm so glad you could share your experience with the uh, Agility at Work listeners. So thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation with Peter Sawyer. Very interesting to learn about how he manages the complex web of negotiations with producers, sponsors, and even his own clients. Finally, a reminder that Agility at Work sponsor, Negotiation 360, offers a range of resources, from links to online courses, to the Negotiation 360 self-assessment best practice app, to articles that Kim and I have written. To get to our site, just type in the letter N, as in negotiation, the digits 360.expert. Make sure you use that domain name. It's N360.expert. Thanks for listening in. I'm looking forward to co-host Kim Leary's return for our next episode. Meanwhile, be well.